I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This morning we continue our study of the spiritually sound church from Titus chapter 2. We have been considering what a spiritually sound church looks like as described in this chapter. And it's been a couple, three weeks or so since we've been in Titus chapter 2. So let me remind you that a spiritually sound church has sound doctrine but not just sound doctrine, but sound living, which flows from that doctrine. So let me repeat again that doctrine and life, doctrine and practice are inextricably bound together. That truth is not only meant to be believed, but to be applied. Truth is not only to be confessed, but is to be lived. Sound doctrine is not just to be contained in creeds and confessions, but it is to be fully functioning in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And the reason is because the gospel is transformative. Truth is transformative. And we've seen so far in Titus chapter 2 that for a church to be spiritually sound, the transformative work of the gospel must be evident in the life of its pastors, those who shepherd souls. And therefore, in verse 1, The Apostle Paul begins with Titus. He says, but as for you, you Titus, in contrast with those that he just mentioned in chapter 1 verse 16, those whose lives deny that they even know God, lives that are detestable and disobedient, in contrast with them, you Titus, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine." You proclaim and you yourself live those things that are consistent with the truth. And so a spiritually sound and healthy church has pastors who live sound doctrine and then exhort others to do the same. But we've seen that there must be more than this. There must be more than just pastors who live sound doctrine. There must be a congregation who lives the truth, whose lives are transformed by the gospel. And therefore, the Apostle Paul addresses older men in verse 2, older women in verse 3, the younger women in verses 4 and 5, and the younger men in verses 6 through 8. And so we have seen that a spiritually sound and healthy church has men, older men, and younger men who live out the truth. And a spiritually sound church has women, older women and younger women, who live out the truth. The truth of the gospel. But now, in verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul addresses Christian slaves. Look in verses 9 and 10, which we will be considering this morning. Hear the word of God. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, at first glance, this appears to be a rather odd transition from men and women in the church to slaves. Why the change from addressing Christian men and women in the church to now addressing Christian slaves? Well, here are some reasons why I believe slaves are addressed here. I'll just give two reasons. There's a practical reason and there's a gospel reason. A practical reason and a gospel reason. The practical reason is because of the pervasiveness of slavery in the culture at the time in which the New Testament was written. There were many slaves throughout the world at the time that the Apostle Paul penned these words. In fact, it is estimated that about one-third, maybe even up to one-half of the population in Rome were slaves. Therefore, Scripture acknowledges the reality of slavery and addresses those slaves who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now that brings me to the gospel reason why it is addressed here in Titus 2. The second reason it's it's addressed is because of the pervasiveness of the gospel. The gospel was for all men, 
as we see in verse 11. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, no matter their socioeconomic situation. The gospel was spreading to all, was pervading the culture. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, we read that the gospel was spreading to the imperial army of Rome, the Praetorian Guard. And we read in Philippians 4, verse 22, that the gospel had even reached Caesar's household. According to 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority, for the gospel is for them too. And it is also for those whose station in life is less distinguished. You see, the gospel is for all. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, the rich and the poor, kings and slaves in society. Most who were being saved were of humble means and humble circumstances, including slaves. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble." Slaves were having the gospel preached to them. And they were not considered the mighty or the noble of society in many cases. Yet, they were among the company of the redeemed. Those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And so the question would arise, what were the implications of the gospel for them? How are they to now live out the gospel. How are they to live out sound doctrine in their situation? So the Bible is not silent on that. The Apostle Paul addresses that. For the gospel and the truth of God's word has implications for everyone in every circumstance of life. So here again, we see the sufficiency of Scripture. Here we see the sufficiency of the gospel and of Christ for all. And so the Apostle Paul doesn't just ignore the fact that there are slaves in Rome who had come in the Roman Empire who had come to faith in Christ. No, he addresses it. And he says, the gospel has implications for you as well. But there's another gospel reason why Scripture addresses slaves. It's not just because of the pervasiveness of the gospel but it's also because of the reputation of the gospel. Every believer should be concerned about the reputation of the gospel. And therefore, Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, not only addresses how slaves were to live in light of the, the gospel, but why they were to live that way. What the motive was behind how they were to live. The motive is that believers might, according to verse 10, adorn that is, beautify the gospel. He says, you give them this instruction, Titus, because here is the ultimate gospel reason. The gospel has implications for you, and they too are to be concerned about the glory of God in every circumstance of life. So he writes, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So here's another connection with what precedes it. In particular, in verse 8, young men in the church, including Titus, were to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And here's another reason. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The believer is concerned about more than just himself. He's concerned about the reputation of the church, the name of Christ, the furtherance of the gospel. And young men were to be concerned about that, that their lives would be so shaped by the gospel that there would be nothing bad said about the church because of their behavior. And so there's a connection. Now he says, now there are slaves who have come to faith in Christ. How are they to live in such a way that they would adorn and beautify the gospel? So for these reasons, among others, Scripture addresses slaves. There were many slaves who had heard and believed the gospel. They were free from sin, but they were still enslaved to a master. How are they to live in that circumstance? Could they 
glorify God in that circumstance? This would have been a common question. And therefore, there are a number of passages that address slaves in the New Testament letters. And some address those who own slaves. Now, before we address slavery in general, and then Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 particularly, just listen to some of the passages in the New Testament that speak to slaves, Christian slaves. And some of them speak to their masters as well. There are some common themes among the passages. Here are some of them. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes there, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And here's a reason. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And then he says, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are, they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and prescribe these principles. Another passage is Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, and here's an important phrase, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no partiality with him. And another passage is Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who, are merely, who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, Notice the Godwardness of this obedience, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. All those are from the Apostle Paul, but then we see the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patient and, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. You can see the consistency throughout the scriptures. The apostle Paul, the apostle Peter. And the same themes occur in all of these passages. And then there's this passage here in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. The focus in each of these passages is the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, let me say some words about slavery in general as found in the Bible. First of all, we see that the Bible does not condone or sanction slavery, but it does recognize the reality of slavery in a fallen sinful world. And therefore, it addresses slaves and masters. As slaves heard and believed the gospel, they needed instruction concerning how to now live as a Christian in that circumstance. And therefore, we find verses like these and passages like these in the New Testament. Now, since the history of the United States includes slavery, and since this is a hot topic, so to speak, let me address this subject first, the subject of slavery. And then we'll look specifically at Titus 2, along with some application. Throughout history, people became slaves in different ways and for different reasons. 
They became slaves sometimes through being captives of war. Sometimes they became slaves through insolvency, the bankruptcy, indebtedness. It was not uncommon for a person with overwhelming debt to sell himself and sell his family members into slavery to serve the one to whom they were indebted. And so that was a way that people became slaves. And in some cases, people were slaves by birth. They were born into a family who were slaves through captives of war or indebtedness. But then there was slavery through kidnapping and the sale and purchasing of human beings, like the atrocious slave trade in our own country's history. The kind of slavery that existed in the past in the United States was through kidnapping, selling, and purchasing people. And we can thank God that there are no slaves here today. We can thank God that we no longer live in a country where slavery is lawful. Slavery and the slave trade which existed in the United States is a sad commentary on the the depravity of man and even the blindness of some Christians to this great sin. But the Bible addresses slavery very clearly. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to show you this in a passage because it's a hot topic because the church often gets uh, attacked, so to speak, by those who would say that the Bible condones slavery or even encourages slavery, but it doesn't. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. There the Apostle Paul writes, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. And so he begins to describe the lawless and rebellious. And by the way, I might mention this when I preach on the Ten Commandments. He's actually mentioning here uh, nine of the Ten Commandments. He says it's for the ungodly. That's the first commandment. The word ungodly here is often used for those who do not serve the one true and living God. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. It's for the ungodly and sinners. That word sinner there was often used of Gentiles who were idolatrous. And so that's a reference to the second commandment, not to make an idol. And it's for the unholy. That's a reference to the third commandment, to not take God's name in vain, to treat it as unholy. And it's for the profane. That's a reference to the fourth commandment. That's a word that would be used of those who would profane the Sabbath. And so the first four words, the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, refer to the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And then it turns to the second table of the law. The law is for those who kill their fathers or mothers. That's a violation of the fifth commandment to honor father and mother. It's for murderers. That's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And immoral men and homosexuals, that would be a reference to the seventh commandment, you shall shall not commit adultery. And kidnappers, or if you're reading the English Standard Version, it says enslavers. That would be a reference to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Here, a reference to stealing, kidnapping a person and enslaving them. And then it says, and liars and perjurers, that's the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So he's calling those things of the law sound teaching, sound doctrine. Only the tenth commandment is not referred to here, the prohibition against coveting, which, by the way, doesn't mean it's not applicable. We don't know why it's not mentioned. It's just not mentioned here. But the other nine are mentioned in some fashion here. But I want you to focus on the word kidnappers or enslavers. The word meant a slave trader. Kidnapping a person for the purpose of selling another human being. So scripture is very clear that it's the unrighteous person who commits these things. And that even the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God has application to this subject. Under the old covenant, 
in the nation of Israel, kidnapping people in order to enslave them was a capital offense worthy of death. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 24 verse 7, If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with them violently or sells them, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. And so it's very clear that the Bible doesn't condone slavery, especially what we're talking about in our nation's history of the purchasing, kidnapping, or purchasing, selling of human beings and enslaving them. But because slavery of various kinds from various circumstances existed, the Bible does address it. Again, it does not condone slavery, but it does regulate it. So, for example, in the Old Testament, according to Exodus 21, verse 2, slaves were to be given the opportunity to be set free once every seven years. It says on the seventh year, he shall go out as a free man without payment. Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6. But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or to a doorpost, and he shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So he could attach himself to someone as a slave permanently by choice if he so desired. So there were at least some cases in the Old Testament where a person would desire to permanently be a slave to his master. In fact, in some cases, it might be economically or socially advantageous to remain a slave. But then there were civil laws in the Old Testament for the protection of slaves. Exodus 21, verse 20, if a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out his tooth, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. So in other words, abuse would lead to freedom. It required freedom. And there were provisions for poor slaves. There would be times when they were set free in that seventh year that they, could, they, were, they were sent away, not empty-handed, but with food to eat. And so the Bible regulates it. It's a reality. It condemns the kidnapping of people, selling them, purchasing them, and selling them on the slave market. But there are other circumstances in which they might be slaves. They could be set free. But in some cases, someone might choose to remain a slave. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament times and understand something of the slavery in the Roman Empire. The Greek word that Paul uses here is doulos. It was the typical Greek word used for a slave. Slaves were introduced into Roman culture hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And during the first century in which the New Testament was written, slavery in Roman culture was widespread. As I said earlier, it's believed that a third of the population to maybe even a half of the population were slaves. Again, when we think of slavery... We think of the horrific and wicked treatment of slaves in American culture and history. And while there, many of the slaves in Roman culture were indeed treated harshly, it would not be completely accurate to project the picture of slavery in American history onto the slavery of Roman culture. Now, I'm not saying this in any way to condone slavery as it existed in Rome or at any other time in history. However, I'm simply saying that it would not be accurate to read what we read in the New Testament and hear the word slave and then think, oh, that's the kidnapping and selling and purchasing of human beings as it was in the United States during that period of time. As I said earlier, there are many ways people became slaves, often through indebtedness. In the first century Rome, many slaves were born in the house of their owner, and then trained to perform important domestic tasks, business tasks. They had public responsibilities. Some were trained to 
to be physicians, educators, artisans, and managers. And in some cases, they were paid for their services and could eventually purchase their own freedom. In general, there were slaves who were well taken care of, were well clothed, and sometimes were housed better than free men. Now let me give you some examples from Scripture that shed some light on slavery in the first century in Rome. In the Gospel of Luke, you remember that there was a Roman soldier who was greatly concerned for his slave, whom he cared for greatly. And so in Luke chapter 7, verse 2, it says, A certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So here's an example. It's just a snapshot of a Roman centurion who loved his slave very dearly. And when he was sick, he highly regarded him and he sought Jesus out. And it doesn't appear that he did so simply because he didn't want to lose a slave in his household. No, he highly regarded him. He loved him. Jesus sometimes spoke of slavery in his parables. And what he says in those parables just sheds some light on the cultural context of slavery at the time. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 45, Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. So again, we're not talking about the parable itself, but we're understanding that Jesus could use that as an example so that now we have a a snapshot of what slavery was like. Here's a slave who's put in charge of his household. And he goes on to speak of one who's put in charge of all his possessions. Think in the Old Testament of Joseph, who served Potiphar. And he was so trusted that Potiphar gave him charge over everything he owned, over everything in his household. Nevertheless, the service of a slave was usually involuntary. Their legal status was clearly lower than others in Roman society. There wasn't always an opportunity for economic independence. And irrespective of sometimes their good treatment, they were still owned by another person. I'm just saying that while it is inaccurate to compare all of slavery to, in the first century, to the United States slave trade, even in the New Testament times, it was nonetheless slavery. And in the early days of the church, as the gospel spread, many were slaves who believed on the Lord Jesus. And there were slave owners who believed on the Lord Jesus. The letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon is a letter about a runaway slave named Onesimus who had since become a Christian under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And Paul sends him back to Philemon, requesting that he be received without punishment and be received back as a brother in Christ and treated as such. For slaves were to be treated, if that was their status, they were to be treated in Christ equal. Galatians 3, verse 28, there's neither slave nor free man. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 addresses again this issue of someone who becomes a Christian and they were a slave before they came to Christ, and now they're a believing slave, what were they to do? He says this, let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So he says, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But if you can't, he says, don't worry about that. And he says, you can glorify God in that situation. Just like in Roman, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 7, he addresses those who became Christians who now had an unsaved spouse. What were they to do? Divorce their unsaved spouse? No, he says, remain with them. You can glorify God in that difficult situation. And who knows, God might save your unsaved spouse. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here, what we find in the rest of Scripture, is for those who came to Christ as a slave, they could glorify him even in that circumstance. 
The fact is that a Christian slave could glorify God just as much as any other person. And that is the goal of the Christian life, to glorify God. And so based on what we've seen so far, here's an observation. The writers of the New Testament do not focus on getting slaves free or abolishing slavery. Again, that could be a good thing. God would raise up some in history who would various times uh, have a movement to set slaves free and to abolish slavery. That's a good thing, but that's not the, the focus of the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament do not say to them, now that you're a Christian, put all of your effort in gaining your freedom. Instead, what they say is, you can live as a Christian in your present circumstance. You can glorify God, even in that circumstance. And so that's the focus. Whether they were mistreated as slaves, they could glorify God. Whether they had a reasonable, good, kind master, they could glorify God. And that's the focus. The most important thing is how do I glorify God? Now, while the gospel confronts and often changes the culture, the New Testament is first and foremost concerned, very important, first and foremost concerned with how Christians can live to the glory of God in whatever culture they live in in whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And so here's the important principle to understand by this. We cannot always change our circumstances. We do not have control over our circumstances, but we do have control over how we will respond to our circumstances. And I'm glad that the New Testament deals with it in this way. Think if, if the writing of Paul was simply this, Slaves, do everything you can to, to get free and get your freedom. They would leave discouraged. They were, it's the Roman Empire. And how is this slave and this one, this one person, this one place going to do that? How discouraging might that be? It might lead to despair. But no, the, the focus is this. When you come to Christ... No matter your circumstance, you can glorify God. You can adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. And so, as it says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 1, the goal needs to be that the name of our God and doctrine is not spoken against. Paul's purpose here in Titus is not to make a statement about the social structure of Rome, nor is it to give a stamp of approval for slavery. Paul is simply giving instructions to those who were slaves and who were Christians who needed to know how to conduct themselves to the glory of God, even in that circumstance. His aim was to give instruction and guidance to believers in the existing social structure of the time. He was concerned about how they lived in their present circumstances and how they could live before a watching world. So again, we can't always change our circumstances. But we do have a choice about how we respond in those circumstances. So let's not miss the very important principle here. Circumstances do not keep you from glorifying God. And therefore, what we need to do by way of application, no matter what the circumstance, whether it was a, a slave in the first century who came to Christ or whatever your circumstance is today. Don't blame your circumstances. If we're not glorifying God, it's not because of our circumstances. We don't blame those in authority over us. We don't blame our work. We don't blame our parents. You don't blame your spouse. You don't blame your children. You don't blame your health. You don't blame anything. Circumstances do not keep us from glorifying God. Nothing should keep us from glorifying and honoring God. So the problem ultimately is never our circumstance. Instead, our circumstance can be our friend. In what way? Well, our circumstances reveal our heart. You've heard me say this often, that it's like a, a sponge, a wet sponge, and you squeeze it. And when you squeeze it, you see what comes out. You know what's in it when you squeeze it. Circumstances squeeze our hearts and show us what's there. 
So the problem isn't the circumstance. And God sovereignly uses people and circumstances to conform us to his image. So what we need to ask is this, how can I glorify God? How can I live out sound doctrine? How can I live out the gospel in whatever circumstance I'm in? Are you saying, well, I can't honor God in this circumstance? Or do you realize that the circumstance is really an opportunity to honor God? Are you responding to that circumstance in such a way that you're growing in Christ and honoring Christ? We could ask this question, what rules your life? Your circumstances or the sovereign Lord of your circumstances? You see, this is the truth that then would encourage the heart of a newly born again slave who then wouldn't be despairing about their circumstances but would say, I am no longer a slave to man. I'm a slave of Christ. And I can do, even in this circumstance, I can do all things to the glory of the God who saved me. See, that would stir them up. And in so doing, then they would beautify the gospel. And so that's what Scripture does. That's what the Apostle Paul does here. He wants them to live the truth, the truth in every circumstance. If we really understood and applied this one truth, it would transform our lives. Amen. That it's not our circumstances that should dictate how we live. It's the sovereign Lord of our circumstances. And it's not just applicable to slaves in the first century or in any time of history. It's applicable in every situation. But what about my circumstance? I'm married to an unbeliever. You can glorify God in that circumstance. What about this circumstance at work? I have a difficult employer. You can glorify God in that circumstance. What about an ungodly government? You can glorify God in that circumstance. You don't have to have a so-called, if I can say it this way, Christian nation to glorify God. You can glorify God in whatever nation you are. In China, in North Korea as a Christian. See, it would transform our lives when we understand that the gospel transforms us so that now we can live to the glory of God in whatever circumstance. It's the same that's true with physical infirmities. How can I glorify God with this physical infirmity? You can glorify God in every circumstance. So again, if we understood and applied this one truth, it would transform our lives. And so in applying it this morning, I'm arguing from the greater to the lesser. If slaves could glorify God in their circumstance, can't you and I? Even though there are no slaves here this morning, there's some very important spiritual truths in this passage that can be and must be applied. Many apply these principles now, and I think there's application here to the workplace. Now, going back to the theme of Titus, <clears throat> let me tie this in. A spiritually sound church. Here we see a spiritually sound church has the gospel and the glory of God as its primary focus. We've seen in the previous verses how the gospel is to be applied, how the gospel transforms our character, how the gospel informs us as to our roles and God-given responsibilities. Most of what we've seen is related to the godly character of an individual, an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, and how they are to live out the gospel in the church and in the home. But here we see that the gospel changes how we live outside the church in relationship even to unbelievers. And so a spiritually sound church not only has proper relationships within the church, but also proper relationships outside the church. We not only need to live to the glory of God in the church, but obviously outside the church as well. Here, the example is that of a Christian slave to his master. So just look brief with me, briefly with me at the instruction under these two headings. First, there is the instruction and then the motivation. Notice first the instruction. For those who found themselves in this circumstance, a believer and a slave, how could they glorify God? 
The first thing he says is be submissive. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. He says, subject yourself. Place yourself under the authority of your master. How are they to do that? Well, 1 Peter 2 verse 18 says, with all respect. With all fear is the word. Phobos is the Greek word in 1 Peter 2 18. And ultimately, you see in all those passages that I read, it's the fear of man, but ultimately it's the fear of the Lord. That's what it says in Colossians 3, verse 23, fearing the Lord. So conduct yourself with fear and respect in that relationship. And we can apply this to our relationships today as with our employers and in the workplace, we're to conduct ourselves with fear and respect for our employers. We live in a day, again, I think probably since COVID and all the things that happened around that and all the circumstances happening in culture around that time, now we, we more than ever think, no, we don't have to be respect, have respect for authority and we can just reject authority. We know there's a proper time to do that. We've learned as Christians through this that there are times to say no when, when those who don't have authority within the church, tell us how the church is to be governed. But don't take that to the pendulum to the extreme and then swing it way over here and say, no, we're not to respect any authority at all. No, we see even here that a slave was to respect and be subject to his own master in all things. In 1 Peter 2.18, it says not only to those who are good and gentle, benevolent and caring, but even to those who are unreasonable and harsh and even perverse, you still show respect for that authority. So he says, be submissive. Then he says, be well-pleasing in verse 9. Be well-pleasing. In other words, try to please them. You understand that there's sinful people-pleasing, but there's also God-honoring people-pleasing. Husbands are to please their wives, the Bible says. And they are to live in a way, and and they're bound to do that. That, That's a good thing. Children should desire to please their parents. And here he says you're to be well-pleasing. It's good to to be well-pleasing in this circumstance, the Apostle Paul says. But ultimately, you do so because you want to, again, the motive is to adorn the, the gospel. And then he tells them, don't be argumentative. Put off being argumentative. Don't speak against them. The word argumentative here is is two words put together means to speak against. It's the idea of being stubborn and obstinate and rebellious, contentious, a complainer. He says, no, don't be that way. Don't be argumentative. And, And certainly don't pilfer. That means to steal and to embezzle. As one commentator said, Roman masters were often so little involved in their business that slaves served as managers. This gave them an opportunity to skim money and otherwise defraud their masters. In contrast, Christians were to display a spirit of utmost integrity. He says, today, this command requires believers to give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Believers will not appropriate work supplies for personal use or inflate their expenses. In other words, be honest and don't pilfer, don't embezzle, don't steal. We could apply it this way in the workplace today. Don't waste time. Don't take breaks that are too long. Don't waste time on the internet. March is coming. Don't watch March Madness when you're supposed to be working. Don't call in sick when you're not. Be honest. Be trustworthy. Don't pilfer. And do this whether you're watched or not. Because you're ultimately serving the Lord. He says you're to show good faith. That is, you're to be faithful. You're to have goodwill toward the one that you're serving. See, this would have been transformative. Previously, there may have been slaves who were just difficult because obviously it might be an unjust situation and they're bitter about their circumstances. Then enter the gospel. The gospel says, yes, but the main goal is to glorify my Savior. So 
So I want to show good faith in this relationship. And so he gives them that very brief and simple instruction, but then the motive is the key in verse 10, so that they will adorn the gospel of God our Savior in every respect. The word adorn here means to arrange in such a way as to make attractive and beautiful. He's saying when you live this way, then you beautify the gospel. Again, 1 Timothy 6.1 says, So that the name of our God and our doctrine, that is the gospel and the truth of God's word, may not be spoken against. There's only one way you can do this. And that's if you do all that you do to the glory of God and not for man. And that's why in Colossians 3.23, it says, it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. You don't ultimately do it for man. You do it for the Lord. How can a, a believing wife glorify God when she's married to an unbelieving husband who maybe doesn't like that his wife is now a Christian or vice versa? How do you glorify God? It, it's, you have to keep your eyes focused on Christ and doing it for the glory of Christ. Yes, that then it might open the eyes of the unbeliever so they might see the beauty of our God and Savior. See, this is the goal. That's the motivation. That's the motivation in everything. We don't do it because it makes life better. We do it because God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And that's why we can live to his glory in every circumstance, even in the most difficult of ones. Now, as I said, this can be applied. There's application to the workplace today. So let me just close by making three very brief points of application to the workplace. First, our work is to be to the glory of God. You can use your work to honor God. You can and should see your work as an opportunity to be a witness for Christ by your words, but also by your life, how you work, how you perform your responsibilities. You can take passages like these and say, I'm not a slave and that I'm owned, but I am under the authority of this one who's my employer. How can I glorify God? How can I do all that I do to the glory of Christ for him rather than for man? And as you do that, you'll adorn the, the gospel. The second application is this. The workplace is a place where the gospel is to be proclaimed. It is a place where we can be salt and light. One commentator in this passage said this, Roman masters were always on alert against slave insurrections. By conducting themselves, that is slaves conducting themselves in obedient, with obedient faithfulness, believing servants alleviated these concerns and thus protected the church from opposition. Something similar occurs in the workplace today where fervent Christians may not easily fit into a secular culture. He says, I experienced this in my military service where the presence of a known Christian made some colleagues feel awkward in their colorful speech and ungodly recreations. But I learned that over time, some who had re most resented a Christian's presence would privately ask for prayer when a child was sick or come to talk to the believer about personal problems. The very difference between the Christian and the non-Christian that made him initially unwelcome, made him useful as a source of spiritual counsel and comfort so that often a welcome ear was given to the gospel. We can be salt and light in the workplace, even in difficult situations, again, Joseph in Genesis is an example of this. He was faithful wherever he was. He served God wherever he was. Whether he was in prison, whether he was a slave in Potiphar's house. And in that sense, he was, as we say, salt and light. And gave glory to God. But thirdly, remember. Circumstances do not keep us from glorifying God. So ask this question, why might God have me here? Even in this difficult circumstance, even in this difficult work environment, why might God have me here in this difficult marriage 
What is he doing and how can he be glorified in this situation? And this gives hope. In the workplace, when there's difficulty, when there's persecution, this gives hope when there's a believer married to an unbeliever or to any Christian in any circumstance. What might God be doing to glorify his name and to adorn the gospel? Make that your aim. There's words of a hymn that we've sung before. It says this, Come fear, come pain, come death or loss, we will be satisfied if we can magnify the cross and God be glorified. That should be our prayer in every circumstance. May we adorn the the God who has saved us by his grace. Let's bow our heads together in prayer and ask him to do this. Father, I pray for these truths, these principles that we see from Christian slaves and how they were to conduct themselves in such a way that would glorify you. Father, I pray that these principles might be applied to our lives in every circumstance. Father, we do thank you that slavery has been abolished in the United States, the slave trade and the things pertaining to it. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that there are no slaves here today. But we are slaves of Christ. We do belong to you. You are our master. You are our Lord. And I pray that it would be our desire that in everything that we do, that we would adorn the doctrine of you, our God and Savior, in every respect. So, Father, I pray whatever circumstance and situation we're in, and we would not make excuses or saying that that is too difficult for us to glorify you. Lord, give us grace. Lord, help us to think sensibly, clearly, and rightly about every circumstance. And Lord, may we trust in you, our wise God, that Lord, you have us in each and every circumstance by your providence that we could glorify you. And may our main desire, Lord, we pray, work this in us because it is not a part of our nature. In every circumstance, may our goal not be first and foremost our comfort, our ease, but may it be the glory of your name and the spread of the gospel to those who apart from believing in Christ will spend eternity in hell. So Lord, help us to keep that as the main thing We pray all this to the glory of your name, through Christ. Amen.